Uh, I saw this documentary a little while back, and uh, it followed the career of this guy who had just gotten into the game of, of racing, of, of you know, racing cars and stuff like that. But even though he had just got into the game, he was having a lot of success. You know, he's, he's very successful very early on, and this made him very arrogant, this documentary began to show. And he ended up being one of the top three contenders uh, for, for, the final, for the final championship race. And during the final race, um, it happened to be a three-way tie. So it forced a final race with just the three, the three guys who, were, who had the, the three-way tie win. So it forced the final three-car three race in California. Uh, and so, but as everyone was making their way to California for this race, this young rookie, he got lost. He got lost on his way to California, and he ended up getting in trouble in this, in this small town, this small forgotten town, and he caused a bunch of damage in this, in this small town, so he had to do community service to, to fix up everything that he ruined. And he ended up finding out that the leader of, the, of this town, like the town, yeah, the town leader, he was the judge and the doctor, uh, his name was Doc Hudson, and uh, he was also known as the Hudson Hornet. And I don't know why you guys are laughing, uh, but Doc, even though he was a racer, uh, he was done with racing. He, he was finished with the racing world um, and everything related to it. And he really didn't like this, this younger driver, this younger race car driver. But over time, uh, the, this young racer, he learned that maybe his fast-paced, arrogant, self-centered attitude in life wasn't the best way to live. And he finished his community service, he gets to California, and he ends up losing the big race because of his concern for one of the drivers who crashed uh, during the race. And even though he didn't win, even though he didn't win the trophy, he showed everyone who the real champion was. Friendship. I'm just kidding, that's not it. <laughs> but the, the young race car driver, his name was Lightning McQueen, uh, he moved back to this little town and he started life all over again. Uh, and you may be wondering, why are we talking about this documentary? Uh, well, it's relevant, in a way, uh, to tonight's message, because there's a part in the, in, in the documentary where Doc Hudson, he's, he's trying to give advice to, to Lightning McQueen. And he's Lightning McQueen, he's trying to figure out how to make this hard left turn in the dirt. He keeps spinning out and, 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 and losing control. And so Doc Hudson tells McQueen, he says, if you turn hard enough right, you'll find yourself going left. Of course, McQueen, at this time, he was still extremely arrogant. He didn't understand what Doc Hudson was talking about. And he begins to mock him, like, oh, yeah, go right to turn left. Yeah, man. And so, uh, but it ended up making sense in the end. It ended up making sense in the end. So if you ever watch the movie, I mean, the, the documentary, you'll see. Um, well, the same concept applies to our text tonight. Uh, we're, in this, we're in this series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in Matthew chapter 2 right now. But I found that if you study enough, if you study hard enough Matthew 2, you'll find yourself in Luke 2. See, it all comes together, uh, which is where we're going to be tonight. Uh, so turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, as tonight we're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus. Uh, you know, where we would have been in Matthew 2 verse 1 tonight. In Matthew 2 verse 1, it starts with, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then it moves on to, to something else. I didn't want to skip over the account of Jesus' birth. Uh, so that's why we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 tonight as we go through the Gospel of Matthew uh, in this series. But, and uh, since we're going to be looking at Jesus' birth 
And in light of the fact that a bunch of people got some Zeal shirts for free, uh, the title of tonight's message is Early Christmas. Early Christmas. And the three points that we're going to be looking at tonight are point number one, animal dung and urine. Animal dung and urine. I don't know why you're laughing, sir. (laughs) Point number two, if Jesus had a publicist, if Jesus had a publicist. And point number three, do the deeds. Do the deeds. So let's begin reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, as we look at our first point, animal dung and urine. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, it says this. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And we'll pause there. So Caesar Augustus, the emperor over Rome, required all people to go back to their homeland in order to be counted. The reason for this was so that Rome uh, would know how many people needed to be taxed. You know, this, this was for financial purposes for Rome. But although Caesar Augustus thought uh, that he made this decree for his own purposes, for his own gain, God was ultimately the one who was deciding this to happen. When we get to our verses in Matthew, you know, we'll read a prophecy that says, that the ruler of Israel would be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Mary was from Nazareth. So when she became pregnant, unless the Lord did something, this baby was going to be born in Nazareth. But in order to fulfill scripture, God made sure that Mary ended up in Bethlehem. Proverbs 21.1, it says that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants wherever he wishes. So God used Augustus Caesar to make a decree that would get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that the scripture would be fulfilled. You know, I wonder if if God, you know, had to do this because Mary and Joseph, maybe they weren't going to do this on their own. Or perhaps if God told them that they needed to go to Bethlehem, they would have done it, but maybe they would have taken their time. But this official decree may have produced an urgency in Mary and Joseph so that Maybe they wouldn't have had otherwise. I don't know. Whatever the case, one thing is for sure. Uh, the trip could not have been easy for pregnant Mary. For sure could not have been easy for pregnant Mary. It reminds me of um, my wife and I. We took our son Caleb to Disneyland for his third birthday, but we took him before he turned three so that he would still be free because we're not going to pay those ridiculous prices to, to go to Disneyland. So, you know, we go. But when we went, we went in May. It was in early May. And my wife was about to explode. She was, she was pregnant. Uh, so we went, I think we went May 3rd. And then we, my wife ended up giving birth to our daughter on May 14th. So it's like 11 days between going to Disneyland and giving birth. So she was super pregnant. And so she wasn't going to be walking around all day because that would have been painful for her. So we got, uh, we got her in an electric wheelchair. Um, before, like right when we parked, they had them available right there. So like, all right, let's, let's just grab one. And so, but the thing that was, that was 
weird was that it seemed like she got a broken one. Like, every, like she had like the slowest electric wheelchair that you could possibly get. Like, yeah, old people passing us up on their electric wheelchairs. It's like they might as well have been Lightning McQueen pass, passing my, my, my wife up. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe she was that pregnant where she's just like weighing the whole thing down. I don't know, but I don't think so. But yeah, it was, it was like, man, why are people passing us up? Like, it would take forever to get to places because, like, you know, I have to walk. I don't want to leave her behind. So I'm just like, yeah, let's go. And so, you know, we got on two rides. And that was it. Um, <laughs> but if, if Rennie would have been walking through Disneyland that entire day, it would have been painful. It is painful. You know, for those of you women who have had kids, looking at you, Nicole, and, you know, for those of you who are going to have kids, it's, it's tough on your body. It hurts your back. It hurts your thighs. It hurts your hips. It hurts your groin. It hurts everything. It hurts everything to walk. It's so difficult. But Vrenny had the luxury of having a wheelchair. Mary didn't. Mary didn't. This trip from Nazareth, Nazareth to Bethlehem, she didn't have that luxury. But she was still obedient to the Lord. As, you know, as she said to the angel when he appeared to her, Behold the bondservant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to how the, the word the Lord has spoken. I'm the bondservant. That's how she saw herself. So, and so it is with us that obedience to the Lord, it might be painful. It might be painful. You know, it may, it may mean getting over ourselves. Actually, that, that, that's exactly what it means. That's, that's always what it means. It, it's getting over yourself. And, and getting over yourself is rarely easy. You know, that's something that I'm still learning to this day in my marriage. You know, I can be so self-centered and so self-focused that I put my feelings and my desires uh, above my wife's. And that's not okay. Gentlemen, you guys in here, if you sit here today and you believe that you are ready to be a husband, take heed lest ye fall. I'm telling you, don't be so presumptuous that you're ready. It's easy. It's easy to be a good man. It's easy to be a good boyfriend. It's easy to be a good fiancé when you split ways at the end of the day. It's much different when you're together all the time, and you need to keep your pride and your flesh in check all the time. It's much more difficult. We need to enter into everything that we do with humility. So it's not, I'm ready to be a husband. It's, man, I know I need the Lord to be the husband that I am supposed to be for this woman. And ladies, the same is for you. The same goes for you. And sometimes that can be hard. Sometimes that can be hard, which is what it was for Mary. Obedience to the Lord is hard. So then she gives birth to this child. She gives birth. She wraps him in cloths, and then she lays him in a manger. There was no room for them in the lodging place. Everybody was coming to Bethlehem to be counted for the census. Well, where's Joseph's family? Who knows? You know, maybe Joseph was the only person left in his family. You know, it's believed that Joseph died before Jesus began his ministry. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe there was a disease, that, there was like a genetic disease in Joseph's family that, you know, all of his family is dead and he's the only one left. You know, or may, maybe Joseph knew that his family wouldn't accept him into their home knowing that he's going to continue to marry this girl who got knocked up by another man, according to them. I don't know. Whatever the case, they needed a place to stay. They needed a place to stay, but they must have taken longer than anyone else to get to Bethlehem due to Mary's you know, condition. Maybe she had a slow electric wheelchair. I don't know. Uh, but, but they were forced to find shelter with animals so that Mary could give birth to the Savior. And I'm once again reminded of the song that I brought up last week, The Humility of Christ by Timothy Brindle. 
Uh, if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It's a good song, theological, doctrinally sound. Uh, but I shared a few verses with you guys last week, um, but I want to share some more because, I, again, this song keeps running through my mind. And I'm going to pick up where I left off last week where he says, Let me ask you if you seem confused with this. God passed through his own creature's uterus. Now, I admit this is odd, but the Bible can persuade me. An omnipotent God crying as a baby? No doctors around, no spot could be found. To give birth to a child, the only option in town was to be born in a feeding trough with breeding cows and feces piles. The scene was foul. It wasn't fancy but raunchy how the Son of God was born next to camels and donkeys. What an awesome feat. He dropped so deep to cop his sheep. He didn't step down. He took a quantum leap. And I'm amazed how God, infinite in wealth, set aside his fame and limited himself to time and space with eyes and legs, and the song goes on. But this is where Jesus was born. He wasn't born in a place or anywhere worthy of his majesty. He was born with animals. And many scholars believe that where he was born, it wasn't the stable-type situation that we tend to think of when we hear that he was born, you know, that he was, he was put in a manger. It wasn't like this, this, wooden, this red wooden barn with huge doors and, you know, the cows or their heads out the window smiling and the roosters on the top of the roof waiting to crow. Ah. It, was, it was well insulated. There's soft hay on the floor. No. They believe that our Savior was born more in like a, a cave-type situation. You know, as, as many caravans made their way up to Bethlehem uh, for the census, the people, they all needed to keep their animals, uh, and they needed a place to keep their animals. And this is where our Savior was born, where these people were keeping their animals, not among his people, but among the animals in a cave, a smelly, filthy, chilly area surrounded by animals and their various fluids and odors. You know, I've seen the birthing process firsthand. I've seen, I've seen natural birth and I've seen C-section. It's gruesome. And it's bad enough when you're in a sanitary environment with all of the tools that have been developed to make the birthing process a little easier. But to have to give birth to a child in this environment, this is what our Savior chose for himself. This is what our Savior chose to do to himself for you. The creator of the world, he chose to become a created thing. The word of God, the living word, he became a speechless baby for you. You know, the word Bethlehem, it means house of bread. And in John 6.35, Jesus would say that he is the bread of life. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. Bethlehem was also the birthplace of Benjamin. For those of you who don't know, Benjamin, he was one of the 12 sons of Israel. And Benjamin was born to Rachel. And this is the woman that Israel truly loved. He worked 14 years to have her hand in marriage. Benjamin was Israel's last son. And Rachel died while giving birth to Benjamin. The woman that he loved the most died while giving birth to his last son. So it's pretty significant. And Benjamin's name, it means son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. King David was also from Bethlehem the man after God's own heart. And David's name means beloved, beloved. So Jesus, the bread of life, according to John, the beloved, David's name, who was from Bethlehem, the son of God who sits at the right hand, the son of my right hand, Benjamin, 
He was born in the house of bread. Let me say that again. Jesus, the bread of life, the beloved son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father was born in the house of bread. It all comes together and is beautiful. The word of God is beautiful. But juxtaposed with that, juxtaposed with that mysterious beauty is the scene that we see at Jesus' birth. A cold, dirty cave filled with the smell of animal dung and urine. And he did this for you. He did it for you. And although this Lord should be worshipped, he volunteered to take upon the form of a servant. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself for you. He made himself completely reliant on his creation for his survival for you. Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15, it says this. Here, oh, this is God speaking. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. This is God speaking. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. In verse 15, it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. God says, I am God. God says, everything in this world is mine. God says, call upon me in your day of trouble, and I will rescue you. God says, I wouldn't tell you if I were hungry, because I have everything that I need. What could you possibly offer me if I were to tell you that I was hungry? God speaking. But now, what do we see in Luke chapter 2? We see a baby. We see a baby who owns nothing. We see a baby who has to be laid in a feeding trough. Animals are fed from this thing. Animals, their drool and their chewed up food that falls from their mouth. And this is the best option for this baby to be laid down to sleep. We see a baby that if Mary doesn't feed them, if, if Mary does not feed this baby, he's not eating. We see a baby that if, if Mary doesn't wrap him up in swaddling cloths, he's going to be cold and uncomfortable. We see a baby that if Mary does not tend to his cries, he will be in perpetual need. We see a baby that must literally, this baby must literally cry out for everything that he needs. He never stopped being the Psalm 50 God in all of the other scriptures that talk about his attributes and his character. But for his time on earth, for his time on earth, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, and he took upon himself the form of a bondservant for you. Because in case you're unaware, spoiler alert for those of you who may not know, he died. He died to save you from your sins and their eternal consequence. He was born to die, period. That's why he was born. He wasn't born to be a good teacher. He wasn't born to show us how to love each other and how to have world peace. He wasn't born to show us what a good person looks like. 
He was the Lamb of God who was born to take away the sins of the world. You know, for so long, I've, I've had this thought in my mind, and uh, I've never been able to fully articulate, you know, this thought until I read John MacArthur's commentary. And uh, he expressed so eloquently, you know, this thing that I've, that's been swirling in my mind for so long. So I just want to, I just want to read uh, John MacArthur to you. Quote, the description of Jesus as Savior is an apt one, since the reason he was born was to save his people from their sins. That obvious truth is often obscured in contemporary presentations of the gospel. Too often, Jesus is presented as the one who will rescue people from unfulfillment in their marriages, families, or jobs, from a debilitating habit that they cannot overcome on their own, or from a sense of purposelessness in life. But while relief in those areas may be a byproduct of salvation, it is not its primary intent. Mankind's true problem, of which those issues are only symptoms, is sin. Everyone is guilty of breaking God's holy law and deserves eternal punishment in hell. The true gospel message is that Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue people from sin and guilt. Not psychological, artificial guilt feelings, but true God-imposed guilt that damns to hell, end quote. You know, I am so tired of seeing people turn the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, into a self-help message or a basis for motivational speaking or motivational preaching or an excuse to make it all about us by viewing God as some sort of genie that, you know, his powers, we need to unlock them by having faith and then we can truly get what we really want. That's not the gospel. Recently, I've, I've asked a couple of people, you know, just people have asked me, like, how do you share? Well, the first question I asked them is like, well, what's the gospel? And, you know, a lot of, some of them were, a lot, actually a lot of them, they found it very hard to answer that question. One person didn't, he couldn't say it. He's like, I don't know. And this was, you know, a believer, a safe person. So ask yourself, what is the gospel? Can you answer that question? What is the gospel? If you can't, then listen up. Listen up, take notes. Check this message out later on Spotify. You can, you can see it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, shameless plug, Pastor Abel Sermon Archive. Go check it out, subscribe, <laughs> like, uh, smash the button, whatever they say. I don't care. <laughs> but just a, a, a brief overview of the gospel, if I could break it down in maybe a minute. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. He has a law, and we've all broken it. And being the God of justice, being the judge of all the earth, when we die and stand before him, we will all be punished for the sins that we've committed by being condemned to hell for all eternity. He is the infinite God of creation. So the punishment for sinning against the infinite God of creation is that of an infinite duration. But God is also love. And John 3.16 says that he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And what are we believing in? That when Jesus Christ was flogged, tortured, and crucified, God placed all of our sins on Jesus. And while he was hanging on the cross, God poured out his just and holy wrath on his one and only son. He punished our sins by punishing his son on our behalf. And that's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The father crushed his son, and it was pleasing to the father to crush his son because while his son was hanging on the cross, he became all of our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus died, he rose again, proving that the sacrifice for sins was accepted by the Father and declaring to us that we can have a resurrection, that we can have a newness of life. And to all who believe in this message, he gives them the right to become the children of God. Not not all of humanity, to those who believe, he gives them the right to be his children. He gives them his Holy Spirit, and now they are new creatures. They They no longer have the same desires that they once had. They are born again, and they desire God. That's the gospel. It's for the salvation. Amen. It's for the salvation of your soul to rescue you from God's wrath in hell. Not to rescue you from your sense of purposelessness or your your feeling of having an unfulfilled life. Those may be byproducts. Those things may be healed in the process. Actually, they will be healed in the process. But that's not the purpose You need to be forgiven of your sins. And you can be forgiven. That's why he came. That's why he emptied himself and entered the world in the humblest way imaginable. And this brings us to our second point of the night, if Jesus had a publicist. So if it were up to us, or, you know, if if his entrance into the world were a humanly planned announcement... You know, it most likely would have been announced a lot differently than what we see in the following verses in Luke. So let's see how the Savior's birth is announced as we continue in Luke chapter 2, and we read uh, verses 8 through 14. It says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And we'll stop there. Had it been left up to humans to plan the announcement of the birth of Christ, uh, it most likely, it's most likely that it would have gone a different route. You know, if Jesus had a publicist, he or she would have announced the news to celebrities, to people in power, people who have influence, uh, you know, people who can use their already existing fame to endorse this message uh, of, about the birth of, of the Son of God and, and pass that message along. They would use their fame. That, that's, that's probably how we would do it. But instead, the Lord decides to make the first announcement of the birth of his son to shepherds. Now, this is significant because shepherds were not part of the in-crowd of Israel. They were actually outcasts of society. Shepherds were uneducated. They were unskilled generally. Uh, They were viewed as dishonest and unreliable. Uh, And for this reason, because they were viewed in this way, they weren't allowed to be used as witnesses and testify in the court of law. Additionally, watching over sheep That was a job that required complete attention, seven days a week watching over sheep. Sheep need a lot of overwatch. And because of this, shepherds, they were unable to comply with the law of Sabbath because they were always out there working. So they were viewed as being in continual violation of the law of Moses. 
And because their work kept them away for so long, they were unable to go to the temple to make the proper sacrifices to make themselves clean. So they were in this perpetual state of being ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, these shepherds. They were outcasts, and they were just constantly in sin, according to the law of Moses. And this is who the Lord made the first announcements to. These shepherds were going to be the first witnesses of the baby Savior. And why them? Well, I think the first answer should always be grace. Our first answer should always be God's grace. It's God's grace on these shepherds that, that he would reveal his holy son uh, to these unholy and unclean shepherds in the same way that it's God's grace on us that he has opened our eyes to see that we need his forgiveness. And it's by his grace that he has saved us through faith. But the deeper meaning, I believe, in, in God revealing the birth of Christ to these shepherds first is two things. First, John 1.29, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus walking and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then John 10.11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus is both the Lamb and the shepherd. And we already talked about how he's the Lamb who, who takes the penalty for our sins, but he is also a good shepherd. So not only has he washed us clean from our sins, but when the enemy comes as a wolf, seeking to destroy and devour us, he stands as our shepherd and our protector. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and he will confront the wolf when it comes after the sheep, which is us. We are his sheep. And the good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows us, and he loves us, as evidenced by his willingness to lay down his life for us. And when one of us strays, when one of his sheep strays, he leaves behind the others, and he goes looking for that sheep that strayed. And when he finds it, he rejoices. He rejoices because he truly does love and know us, his sheep. He knows them so well that at the end of days, when it's time to, to judge the world, he's going to go through everyone, and he's going to separate his true sheep and usher them into his presence in heaven forever, and he's going to take the goats who are pretending to be sheep, and he's going to usher them into eternal damnation in hell forever. The goats are going to face punishment. So make sure that you're a sheep in here. For those of you that are in here, make sure you're a sheep and not a goat, because the shepherd has no time for goats. But that's why God reveals his son's birth to shepherds first. It makes sense that they would be the first to know. It just, it's fitting. And what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, they probably didn't fully understand it or grasp it at first. They, the, the angels said, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They were told that not only was the Savior born, that the Messiah, the Christ, was born, that he was, but that he was also the Lord God himself. That he was God in the flesh. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It says that the, it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in Jesus. And of course, John 1, John 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, 
Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. If he was God, he's still God. God can't stop being God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The angels were communicating that the eternal, omnipotent Son of God has just taken the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that's Philippians, because of the fullness of the time has now come, and God the Father has sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. That's Galatians. This is what the angels were saying. This is what the angels were saying to the shepherds that most likely they didn't fully grasp yet. But it didn't matter that they didn't fully grasp it. They understood enough to get them excited to go. And this brings us to our final point of the night, do the deeds. Do the deeds. So let's continue reading Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 15 through 20. It says, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. The angels didn't tell the shepherds to go and find Jesus. They didn't tell them to do that, but that's what they did. That's what they did anyway. They said, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what the Lord has made known to us. Let's go. And this is a picture of the sinner's response. This is a picture of the sinner's response to God's revelation of the gospel. The shepherds, they heard God's declaration and they responded by going to him. When sinners hear God's declaration, they respond by going to him. You know, we skimmed through the book of Acts a month or so ago, and we saw a few different uh, gospel presentations. And one thing that stood out to me as we were going over these gospel presentations is that the people who were listening, they were most often the ones who were asking, you know, what they should do, what, what they should do next after hearing the gospel presented. You know, brethren, what shall we do in Acts chapter 3? You know, what, what prevents me from being baptized, the, says the Ethiopian eunuch. Sirs, what must I do to be saved, asked the jailer to Paul and Silas. And these are some of the examples of people's responses to the message. You know, other times it just says that people believed, but these things stand out. There's always a next step. There's the going to him. Going to him. You don't need to be convinced you don't need to be enticed. You don't, need, you don't need to be emotionally coerced. If you've heard from the Lord and the Lord has opened your eyes, you either respond in obedience or you respond in disobedience. That's it. You don't need anybody twisting your arm to come to the Lord. If you know your need for him, then you come, and that's it. You don't need somebody to, to ask you to raise your hand or, or would, would you like to commit to Christ? In the book of Acts, man, in the book of Acts, we read of people, they hear the gospel what do I need to do? That was their response. So I don't think I'm going to ask anybody anymore. <laughs> the Lord spoke to you. You're going to go. There's always that next step. Always. 
But the sinner who gets saved, the sinner who gets saved, they will respond by coming to him. They will respond by going to him. And that's what these shepherds did. They went to him. They came to him so quickly. And they arrived so soon after his birth that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they were still in that cave and Jesus was still in the manger. That's how quickly they responded. Of course, the shepherds and, and these new parents, they began conversing and exchanging testimonies. No doubt Mary was sharing all the things that had happened, the angel speaking to her, Joseph, the angel that spoke to him, and now these shepherds are like, man, the angel spoke to us too, and this is what they said. And, and it appears that from the text that now there was something of a crowd all gathered around the scene because Luke writes that, that what the shepherds were telling when they were telling their story, it says that all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. So the people who were there, they may, they may have viewed the testimony of the shepherds as, as, not the people that were there, but people in general. People in general, they may have viewed uh, the testimony of shepherds as not being trustworthy enough to be used in the court of law even. But God didn't care about that. God didn't care about that perception. He entrusted these shepherds, these untrustworthy shepherds, these unreliable shepherds. He entrusted them with the testimony of his son coming into the world. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. You know, you, you may not feel worthy. First of all, you're not. Spoiler alert, you're not worthy. But God wants to use you anyway. He wants to use you anyway. That's God's grace. You may feel like you're, you're in a place of not being worthy or of any value, but trust in grace and not in your place. You know, see, that's the part where you guys go like, wow, so good. Oh, my. Yeah, I'm just, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Anyway, um, so, you know, there were other people around who, you know, they were in the presence of the Savior. They were in the presence of the Savior. And they were listening to the testimony of the Lord through the shepherds. But Luke says that they wondered. It says they marveled, that, you know, they were surprised Nothing of conversion, nothing of, of sinners coming to God. You know, that, that may have happened, but that's not what we're told. That's not what Luke writes. And it, and it seems, that seems to be the pattern of humanity, doesn't it? You know, they'll hear the things of God. They'll marvel at the love of God, like, wow, God, it really is love. They'll wonder about the possibility of the gospel being true. But ultimately, they'll reject the message and they'll, they'll subscribe to being, well, I'm not religious, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more spiritual. They'll take bits and pieces of God, you know, things that are acceptable to them and to their ungodly appetites. But ultimately, they'll simply wonder at these things instead of believing and coming to him in faith. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, it's the last book of the Bible. Jesus said that the road is narrow. And the door is small that leads to eternal life. And that there are few who find it, Jesus said. And the shepherds, they found it. They found it as evidenced by their eagerness to be with him. They were eager to be with him. They found the narrow road and the small door because they ran after it. And it's the same with us. It's the same with us, or at least it ought to be. And if, if you sit here tonight and you find that you know, maybe your love for the Lord has grown cold, then you need to return to your first works. Let me tell you what I mean. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is Jesus speaking. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and, I, and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Does Jesus have this against you? That you've left your first love, which is him? If so, you need to remember from where you've fallen. You need to repent, and you need to do the things that you used to do. You need to understand where you went wrong. Did you start letting a little sin in your life? Did you begin to do things that maybe they're not bad things, but they're not the most excellent things? Did you begin to sacrifice your time with the Lord so that you can spend more time on other things? You know, I need to spend more time working on my business or working at my job so that I can be a provider. At the expense of dwelling in the presence of the true provider? Well, I need, I need to spend more time working on myself. You know, more, I, need, I, need, I need more time in the gym. I need to spend more time working out, more time reading self-help books, personal development books, thinking and grow rich, you know, how to win friends and influence people. I, I, I got to spend time reading these books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, so I can be a better person. I can be more marketable at the expense of being in the presence of your source of grace. Is there something that you've let in or is there something that you have stopped doing that has brought you to this place of having left your first love? Then repent, repent. Go back to doing what you used to do when you were in love with the Lord or go back to not doing the things that you were not doing when you were in love with the Lord. It's that simple. Do the deeds that you did at first. It's that simple. And the Lord is that gracious. But the Lord is also that severe. Because he also says that if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. The word is a lamp to my feet, a light unto my path. I'm going to remove your understanding of the word. So return to your first love by returning to your first deeds. And what were the first deeds of the shepherds? What were the first deeds of the shepherds? They hurried to Jesus. They hurried to Jesus firstly. And then when they, when they were with Jesus, they went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And so we too, we need to hurry to Jesus, hurry to be with him, even when it's difficult to wake up in the morning. Trust me, I know. This is the first year in my life ever where this time change has made my life very difficult. Must mean that I'm getting old. I don't know. Am I, Tony? Thank you. <laughs> but this is the first year where it's been very difficult to wake up in the morning. But you need to we need to hurry to Jesus even when it's difficult. Hurry to be with him. And then, like the shepherds, and then go back. 
Go back. Go back to your jobs. Go back to your classrooms. Go back to your families. Go back to all of the places that God has strategically placed you and testify of the Lord. Glorify and praise him for all that you have heard and seen just as had been told you would happen. God said that he would save you by his grace through faith. And that's what he's done. So praise and glorify him for it by testifying of it to others. You know, it, it may be a, a one-and-done testimony, you know, where it's, a, it's a, a one-time planting of the seed or a one-time watering of the seed because you're never going to see that person again. Or it may be a long-term planting and watering of the seed because this person is in your life for the long haul, just doing it over and over again. Regardless, these are the deeds that the, shepherd did, the shepherds did. They ran to Jesus, and then they went back glorifying and praising God for what he has done. And it lines up with what Jesus has commanded us to do in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So return to those deeds. Return to your first deeds and move forward in the Lord if you're in this place of having left your first love. Amen? Let's pray.